This is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, April 23rd. I'm Kate Trinko. And I'm Daniel Davis. Hundreds are dead in Sri Lanka after Easter terror attacks targeted Christians and foreigners. We'll sit down with Jeff Smith today, an expert on South Asia at the Heritage Foundation, to discuss. Plus, our friend Tim Descher ran 100 miles nonstop. How is that even possible? We'll ask him. By the way, if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving a review or a five-star rating on iTunes, and please encourage others to subscribe. Now, on to our top news. The Supreme Court announced it's hearing a case next term with big implications about whether it is illegal for an employer to refuse to hire someone because of his sexual orientation or being transgender, and specifically whether it is discrimination on the basis of sex. The Heritage Foundation's Ryan Anderson tells The Daily Signal, There is a reason why, for the past 25 years, activists have tried to legislatively amend federal civil rights law to include sexual orientation and gender identity. That reason is simple, because it doesn't include those categories. Courts should not do what activists have failed to do, redefine sex to mean sexual orientation and gender identity. Authorities in Sri Lanka have arrested 24 people in connection with the horrific Easter bombings that targeted churches and hotels across the small Indian Ocean country. The coordinated bombings have claimed 290 lives so far, with over 500 others wounded. The attacks took specific aim at Christians and foreigners, with bombs destroying three churches and three high-end hotels. The State Department has now confirmed four Americans are among the dead. Sri Lankan authorities are blaming the attacks on local jihadist group National Tawhid Jamath. Officials say they received several advance warnings from foreign intelligence agencies, though Prime Minister Ranil Wickremesinghe said he and other top officials were not alerted. On Sunday, he said, we must look into why adequate precautions were not taken. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi isn't ready to join the pro-impeachment faction of the left. In a letter to House Democrats, per The Hill, Pelosi writes, While our views range from proceeding to investigate the findings of the Mueller report or proceeding directly to impeachment, we all firmly agree that we should proceed down a path of finding the truth. It is also important to know that the facts regarding holding the president accountable can be gained outside of impeachment hearings. On NBC's Meet the Press Sunday, House Judiciary Chair Jerry Nadler, Democrat of New York, struck a more aggressive note. Do you think this is impeachable? Yeah, I do. I do think that this, if proven, if proven, uh, which hasn't been proven yet, some of this, uh, if proven, some of this would be impeachable, yes. All right. Obstruction of justice, if proven, would be impeachable. And you're going to go about to see if you can prove it? Well, we're going to see where the facts lead us. And at the White House Monday for the Easter egg roll, President Trump seemed pretty chill about it all. Not even a little bit. President Trump is fighting against Democrats over his tax returns. The president and his sons at the Trump Organization are now suing to block House Democrats from obtaining his financial records. The Democrat-controlled House Oversight Committee had subpoenaed 10 years' worth of Trump's financial records. In the court filing on Monday, Trump's lawyers accused Democrats of being, quote, singularly obsessed with finding something they can use to damage the president politically, end quote. 
but Oversight Committee Chairman Elijah Cummings dismissed those claims, saying the president has a long history of trying to use baseless lawsuits to attack his adversaries, but there is simply no valid legal basis to interfere with his duly authorized subpoena from Congress. Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat of Massachusetts, wants to forgive 50000 of student debt for any American making less than 100000 She also wants the nation to offer free college. How will Warren pay for it? In a post on Medium, the senator writes, The entire cost of my broad debt cancellation plan in universal free college is more than covered by my ultra-millionaire tax, a 2% annual tax on the 75,000 families with $50 million or more in wealth. Well, Social Security is drying up fast. On its current trajectory, the program's trust funds will be tapped out by 2035 meaning tens of millions of Americans would start to receive about 25% cut to their promised benefits. That's according to an annual report recently released by the trustees of Social Security and Medicare. The report also says that for the first time in nearly 40 years, Social Security's costs will exceed its revenue by the year 2020 and continue that way through 2093. President Trump has promised not to make any changes at all to Social Security, But this report is bolstering voices who are calling to reform entitlements before they go insolvent. Maya McGinnis, president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, said, Efforts should be taken now and phased in over time to slow the growth of health costs in Medicare and restore sustainable solvency to Social Security. But every day that passes, the problem gets bigger and the solutions become more difficult to implement. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced the U.S. will be taking new actions to prevent all nations from buying Iran's oil and thus funding the regime. Up to 40 percent of the regime's revenue comes from oil sales. It's the regime's number one source of cash. Before our sanctions went into effect, Iran would generate as much as $50 billion annually in oil revenue. Overall, to date, we estimate that our sanctions have denied the regime well north of $10 million. The regime would have used that money to support terror groups like Hamas and Hezbollah and continue its uh, missile development in defiance of UN Security Council Resolution 2231. And it would have perpetuated the humanitarian crisis in Yemen. Our goal has been to get countries to cease importing Iranian oil entirely. Last November, we granted exemptions from our sanctions to seven countries and to Taiwan. With this is to give our allies and partners to wean themselves off of Iranian oil and to assure a well-supplied oil market. Today, I'm announcing that we will no longer grant any exemptions. We're going to zero, going to zero across the board. We will continue to enforce sanctions and monitor compliance. Any nation or entity interacting with Iran should do its diligence and err on the side of caution. The risks are simply not going to be worth the benefits. Well, a landslide election in Ukraine over the weekend has flipped the political scales and brought a comedian with little political experience into power. 41-year-old Vladimir Zelensky defeated current President Petro Poroshenko, who had been a staunch supporter of Ukraine's Western alliance and had cast himself as a bulwark against Russian aggression. Zelensky won with a stunning 73% of the vote on Sunday. He'll take office in May. The election puts Ukraine in uncharted waters. Zelensky has not put forward much of a political platform, but he's actually played the president in a local TV show, which is pretty interesting. 
George Mason University isn't backing down on hiring Brett Kavanaugh to teach classes at its law school for a few summers. Huffington Post covered a town hall at the university where George Mason president Angel Cabrera told the students, even if the outcome is painful, what's at stake is very, very important for the integrity of the university. Washington state is literally delaying adulthood, at least in one respect. The governor there has signed a law that requires kids to sit in booster seats while riding in cars until they reach four foot nine. That could mean some middle schoolers getting stuck in a booster seat. And we wonder why the kids don't grow up. That is, as someone who remembers hating the booster seat is like, I don't know, a five-year-old, a four-year-old? I cannot believe they are doing this. I don't even remember the booster seat. Well, maybe you were writing illegally. I don't know. My dad let me, well, I won't get into that. Before we incriminate your dad. (laughs) Up next, we'll talk to Jeff Smith about the Easter bombings in Sri Lanka. Do you own an Amazon Echo? You can now get the Daily Signal podcast every day as part of your daily Alexa flash briefing. It's easy to do. Just open your Amazon Alexa app, go to settings, and select flash briefing. From there, you can search for the Daily Signal podcast and add it to your flash briefing so you can stay up to date with the top news of the day that the liberal media isn't covering. We're joined now by Jeff Smith. He's a research fellow in the Asian Studies Center here at the Heritage Foundation. Jeff, thanks for being on. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Jeff, right now, uh, we, you know, we've got reports coming out of Sri Lanka. Um, roughly 290 people uh, killed so far, over 500 wounded in the Easter bombings. Um, the government there is blaming this on a local jihadist group. Um, tell us about that and what we know. Yeah. So, uh, thus far, all signs point to a local jihadist group that really has not had a a history of conducting large-scale terrorist attacks or really deadly terrorist attacks at all in Sri Lanka. Um, This group was mostly known for vandalism and graffiti uh, more than anything else. So it came as a bit of a surprise uh, to hear that they were likely responsible for this attack. Uh, You know, up to two dozen people Uh, One to two dozen people, depending on the account, have been arrested so far. Uh, So they do have who they think was responsible for the attack. They are all local Sri Lankans. But uh, much of the speculation now is that this group, you know, with with such a small history, must have been working with international jihadist groups to have conducted such a a well-planned and coordinated attack. And... um, what makes this very peculiar, I would say, is is that there's not a history of Christian-Muslim tensions in Sri Lanka. Um, this is a country that's experienced a lot of violence and tragedy, namely a over 30-year civil war that ended only in 2009. But that was among the majority Buddhist uh, population and the uh, minority uh, Hindu-Tamil population. That's where the sharpest divide on the island has been, and it was an extremely bloody conflict. In fact, the Tamil Tigers were the first group to really pioneer the suicide bombing. It wasn't a Muslim extremist group. It was this Hindu Tamil organization in Sri Lanka. Uh, And and throughout that conflict, Christians were largely left out of it. They were seen as neutral parties. There are both both, – uh, Tamil Christians and and the Buddhist majority Sinhalese Christians, and they were seen as kind of bridging the divide. 
And so there's not really a history of attacks on Christians. There's not really a history of attacks by Muslims. Um, and, and yet here we are with one of the deadliest attacks uh, ever, terrorist attacks ever. I mean, it doesn't top 9-11. There are some others that, but, you know, maybe top 10 in recent history, maybe the deadliest terrorist attack in South Asia in recent memory. Um, so it's a horrible tragedy. So you mentioned that there wasn't a history of tensions between Christians and Muslims. Mm -hmm. So it also seems surprising that in addition to the Catholic churches targeted, the other target would be hotels. Yes. What was the motivation in this sort of seemingly bizarre, uh, you know, unconnected two types of targets? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that's why uh, the government there and most analysts think there probably was some connection to sort of international jihadist groups because this wasn't an attack that reflected local grievances of Sri Lankans, either the church or, or the hotels, these international tourist destinations. Those are the types of targets you would find for groups like ISIS and al-Qaeda. They want the high-profile attacks on the West as vengeance for you know whatever their perceived slights are in, in their civilizational holy war. Um, the targets seem to suggest their hand in this. Um, so I think that's probably our best guess. It's hard to see why a local Sri Lankan group, if there was any tensions uh, on the island with the, with the Muslim community, it would have been with the Buddhists. And there have been cases in the past few years of clashes between the two groups. So, you know, one, one would have assumed before today that if there was some kind of terrorist attack, it may have happened along that fault line or the Buddhist Tamil fault line, not with Christians. So that's why I think everybody's kind of keying in on who else was involved and what other Wahhabi group or international terrorist group uh, was was behind this. Well, government officials in Sri Lanka are also saying that they received warnings uh, more than a week before the attack from other foreign intelligence agencies that this that this could be coming. And they, they then arrested some of the people mentioned in those warnings. Yes. So clearly they were accurate. Why do you think but, – yes. but the prime minister said that he did not um, – he, you know, the, the, he, he and the top officials were not alerted. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think was – I guess we'll find out at some point, but speculations as to what went wrong? Uh, yeah. I mean it's, it's an unfortunate and sort of embarrassing revelation I think for the Sri Lankan government. Um, it was, I think we now know, Indian intelligence that was shared with them on, on April 11th. Uh, pretty specific intelligence, too, that groups would be targeting churches and maybe even specific information about who was involved in the attack. There was a notice sent around at sort of like the police chief level that groups might be targeting churches in, in the days or weeks ahead. But high-ranking government officials have come out and said that they never saw the intelligence. And as you mentioned, the, the prime minister, so this is actually a, a reflection of a bigger political struggle underway in Colombo between the prime minister and the president. And late last year, the president tried to essentially pull a soft coup and have the prime minister replaced by one of his former allies and another former president of the country. Uh, ultimately, that attempt failed. It was defeated in the Supreme Court and the Parliament. Um, but since they had to sort of patch things up and get back together, the Prime Minister has reportedly not been in national security 
meetings in the government. So whether that would have made a a fundamental difference or not, I I couldn't say. Um, But it doesn't help that there were tensions between the different power factions in the government. That certainly probably doesn't help with coordination at all. And the security services, I think, are, you know, have some questions to answer about why this intelligence wasn't acted on when it seemed pretty specific and pretty credible. So as you mentioned, this is one of the largest terrorist attacks in recent history, and it's also in a region not known for this kind of terrorism. Um, Does this suggest we're reaching a new direction and, you know, this ongoing war and terror we've been dealing with for so many years, or is this perhaps just an anomaly? Well, I hope it's an anomaly. And in sort of Sri Lanka's uh, history, it's, it's been an anomaly. Um, unfortunately, it's not, you know, farther north. Um, India and, and Pakistan just uh, in the last two months or so were again at odds, almost coming to war uh, over a terrorist attack in Kashmir, the likes that, you know, India has faced for, for many years now. Um, Pakistan in particular has been sponsoring sort of some of these radical jihadi groups, either tacitly, you know, indirectly, but allowing them to operate. And, uh, you know, this time India struck back and launched attacks on terrorist training camps in Kashmir. Um, and, and the, the two sides were in a dogfight in which one Indian plane was downed. So in farther North in that region, the terrorism issue is very much alive, uh, and, and is creating a very volatile situation between two nuclear-armed powers. Sri Lanka has, to date, mostly avoided that. And, you know, I know they're hoping that this was just an anomaly, that this was an isolated incident. Um, there aren't a large number of sort of radicalized people in Sri Lanka, but there were reports that up to 100 of them went to fight with ISIS, you know, about two years ago. Is it possible some of them came back with training or knowledge or operations? Certainly there's going to be a lot more scrutiny and security crackdown uh, on anyone even suspected of being part of one of these radical organizations. So hopefully they can sort of isolate the cancer and cut it out. Well, we've heard that since ISIS was you know, officially defeated as a caliphate that they would be emphasizing these sort of um, a- attacks in other countries, um, kind of guerrilla warfare kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, is it so? Is it more likely that this was ISIS and not Al Qaeda? Because obviously Al Qaeda mm-hmm. um, would would be wanting to reassert itself um, sure. over against ISIS. Yeah, it's very difficult to say at this point. I mean, it does seem that ISIS has been more active as of late than Al Qaeda, and they actually came out and celebrated the attacks, the Easter attacks in Sri Lanka. And the group who's suspected of being responsible hasn't claimed responsibility for the attacks. ISIS has actually been more active about it than than this group has, but um, it's it's very difficult to say until we have some more intelligence. All right. Well, Jeff Smith, uh, thank you so much for coming in and explaining for us. Sure. Thank you. Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? Then subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a podcast breaking down the cases, personalities, and gossip at the Supreme Court. Joining us today is Tim Desher, Associate Director for Coalition Relations at the Heritage Foundation and co-host of the excellent podcast, Heritage Explains. More amazingly, Tim just ran 100 miles in a race, which I cannot get over. And we're here to find out how the heck 
somebody does that. So, Tim, what's your secret? Stop laughing. This is very, very listen, serious. Listen, okay. If, if first of all, first of all, there's nothing like the Daily Signal podcast. Heritage Explains is just trying to be more like the Daily Signal podcast, and and that's the real challenge. Is, but wait, we're is, trying to be, to be more like you guys. To be, <laughs> listen, listen. No, it it was a uh, it was a it was a journey that that started when I was diagnosed with type one diabetes in uh, 2004. I was 18 years old and. My doctor said, um, you should probably, well, in addition to, you're going to have to give yourself several injections every day for the rest of your life until the good Lord heals you. He didn't say that. I said that. He said, you're probably not going to be able to do strenuous physical activity like running marathons. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, other than an occasional low blood sugar or high blood sugar feeling... I'm pretty healthy. Why why couldn't I do this? And so I went to see another doctor. I got a second opinion and she actually started shouting, you know, out loud in the doctor's office, "How could he tell you that? How could he tell you that? I would never argue with a patient who wants to work out and exercise because that is actually one of the best things to combat diabetes." And so she basically kind of came alongside me as a dreamer in this whole thing and was there every kind of every race, everything that I did, it was her kind of behind the scenes saying, I trust you. I know that you're going to take care of yourself and I know we're going to do this. So it was really kind of having that, that dreaming partner, um, you know, in addition to my family and friends who, who believed and supported me, but, but also this doctor who would have thought, I mean, it's just really, really cool. Yeah. Good thing you got a second opinion. I mean, goodness. So, so yeah. <laughs> what, how did this start? I mean, you, did you start with just like 30 miles or, or you know, you kind of like slowly work your way up to 100? It's funny. Um, yeah. So from I, I've never been the kind of person that will just do, you know, I'm, I'm not obsessed with anything. It's always kind of been purpose driven. It's not just I you love running so much. I don't really like. Yeah, purpose. Thank <laughs> I <you>. do. <laughs> Thanks, Rick Warren. Um, no, I, I. it's always been something where. I'll I'll just get it in my head one day and say, okay, I'm going to go do a, I'm going to run a marathon, and then I'm strategic about training for it and making sure that I'm not hurting myself and that a pace is real and that kind of a thing. Um, and so it's basically just setting a goal. So I've only done I've only run one marathon. I've only run one 50 mile race. I've only done one hundred mile race, um, and that's over a span of you know 14 years that I've done that. So it's not like I'm doing this all the time. It's just that you set the goal in your head and, you know, you say, I'm going to beat diabetes. I'm going to do this. And that's what drives you to train. So, yeah, that's pretty much the, the, the genesis of the whole thing. So what is training for 100 miles looks like? I mean, if you I mean, do you run 25 miles every weekend? What's what does that mean? Well, you, you start from a base basis point. I said to myself, if I can't do a half marathon, just starting from nothing, then you shouldn't be training for a 100-mile race. So that might be something to to do first. I could do that. So I remember um, I was in San Francisco, and I went out and I ran a half marathon on my own. Wait, up and down those hills? Yep, yep. I just went out and did it, and I said, okay, no injuries. I'm good. We're going to start training. So for about four and a half months, I took a routine, and the first week at the end of it uh, was a 20-mile run. And, and it just kind of builds from there. 
Um, you only do one. I only did one long run a week. And you would pretty much just add two or three miles each week um, until you get to the, 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 the climax, which was about um, um, 68 miles per, per week. And so the long run was about 45 miles. That was it. That was all. I mean, I didn't do anything more than that. So, so when you actually run the 100 miles, um, like I, I know people are dead exhausted after a marathon. You know, twenty six. So, how long? How long does it take you to run the hundred? Well, you're preparing for it in your head when you go to sleep at night. You're preparing for it because, from what I understood about the whole thing, uh, and I had done a fifty mile before. Um, up to fifty miles, it's all physical. Uh, a lot of people try and race. You know, zero to fifty miles. They try and do it as a race. They try and do it as quickly as possible. But the hundred miler is all mental. Because once you hit that 50 miles, then you're into that realm of, well, now I'm just tired. Now I've got, you know, a blister on my foot. Now I've got every reason to stop kind of a thing. And the mental aspect is really what you're training for. You're thinking about it all the time. And you have to put in strategies. You can't even comprehend going that far in your head. You just can't do it. Just like you guys are. How do you... uh, that's exactly what I was thinking the entire time. And that's kind of the mental game that you have to play. And let me tell you something. After 50, the first 50, it is all mental. No question. So what... I'm just fascinated by this because this is not my strength at all. So what sort of mind games were you playing with yourself like in mile 60? You've got 40 more to go. What are you telling yourself to keep yourself motivated at that point and not just like die by the side of the road? Well, so... Basically, around mile 60, I was telling myself, I was giving myself the out. I was telling myself that you can quit now. You've gone farther than you've ever gone before. Um, and even in my head, I started started this lie of, hey, oh, this isn't healthy. You, Your blood sugar um, hasn't been this off for this long, for a long time. And you're probably going to do long-term damage to your body and all this stuff. And by uh, mile 60... I was talking to my dad who ran uh, one mile of each lap with me. The first mile of each lap, we, there were eight laps. Oh. Um, he, he came down, so he was up all night. He was talking with people, hey, my son's, my son's a diabetic. Can you, can you make sure you see him out at, you know, aid station two, blah, blah. He was, he was kind of interceding for me. It was incredible. And so um, I was telling him, I was like, dad, I don't think this is healthy. I think, I, I, you know, I think I've got to stop and, you know, whatever. And, and he was quiet. And he said, why, why don't we walk this first mile? Let's just walk it together. And uh, if you want to quit at the end of it, well, that's fine, Tim. You've done more than you'll, you've ever done and most people will ever do. And um, walk that first mile of the sixth lap. And um, by the end of that first mile, uh, I had resolved in my head that my dad believes in me, <laughs> which means that I can't let him down and that lap that sixth lap turned out to be the best lap of the race i i was strong i was quick i was smart and the sixth seventh and eighth lap the last three were the best it was incredible yeah so were you walking some of them yep so um we walk um if you if you do some reading on ultra marathons it's not really healthy to run the entire time uh, right. So for me, it took me a while. 
um, given certain certain issues that I had with with diabetes, given some blisters and things like that. It took me 27 hours and 26 minutes to finish the 100 milers, which is it's kind of a long time. Um, so you I know, I don't even like to stay awake that late. <laughs> <laughs> so you're just going though. You're just going. You're going. You're going. And they actually tell you that it's probably not healthy to run continuously for that long. So it's good to stop and use your legs in a different way. And so they encourage you to walk up all hills. So that's what I did. That was my strategy. Walk up hills. And there was about a thousand feet of elevation per lap. So there were quite a few hills that that I could that I could walk up. But again, it's not really like a walk in the park. It's a quick, it's a quick walk. So you're using your muscles in a different way. Um, so yeah, there were there was that aspect of it, um, which kind of changed things up. What about hydration? Did you drink water at all? Yeah, that's that's the tough that was my hardest part was balancing water and actually salt intake. Um, if you have too much water, they call it waterlogged. If you have too much salt, then you start to get puffy and you start to get blisters and you start to, it's really, really funny how, how it happens. I would look down and my hands would be white as a ghost. And, and, um, somebody that I was running with at the time, you know, he said, you you should cut back on the salt that you're taking in and, and maybe focus on drinking water. And so I did that. And then, and, and then I drank too much water and then it's just, it's all a science and, and, you know, it's something that you got to figure out. And if I was smarter, if I trained smarter, I probably would have figured that out. But again, you don't know in training because you don't go a hundred miles. You don't know. So, yeah. So we live in a culture where there's a lot of focus on instant gratification and you can see that in sort of, you know, phone addictions and watching TV and so many other aspects of our lives. What sort of led you to want to take on, you know, an arduous challenge like this that was going to require a lot of patience, a lot of commitment? Yeah, there are a lot of 60 plus people that were running this race. And which is crazy to think 100 miles, a, six, a person 60 years old. I mean, there are a lot of people doing that. And I asked one of them. His name is Jerry Sullivan. Um, he's from uh, uh, Louisiana, and he loves he loves the Heritage Foundation. Um, Thanks, Jerry. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I I ran with him for a bit of it, and I asked him what what does he do? He's, it's a it's a it's a long it's a long time, and you have to have a lot of resolve to do it, and so a lot of young people don't have the the patience, mm-hmm. which was very fascinating to me. Because he literally made your point at, mm. in describing why there's this many older people doing this race. Now, it's not just the hundred miles; it's the four and a half, five months of training that leads up to it. You got to be dedicated to it. You got to get out there and put your miles in every single week. But I would, I would say that that this wasn't just me wanting to run. This was a dream. That again, I had that 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 I had people holding me accountable to. I had my doctor emailing me. I had my my dad saying, "I'm super impressed, Tim. I'm so proud of you." I had my friends, um, you know, coming alongside me, checking in on my long runs, tracking me through my phone. I would share my location with people, make sure I wasn't stopped in one place for too long. And if I was, they would ask me, "Hey, is, is your blood sugar okay? Are you doing okay? Are you?" passed out laying in a ditch somewhere <laughs> you know so this was this was a a stretch of faith for me this was a stretch of faith for me 
Um, and uh, and it's no surprise too that on those last three laps, that was when I was praying the most. That was when I was singing songs out loud. I know it was crazy to people running by me or me running past them, but but that was my way of 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 dedicating that time to a purpose. Okay. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Tim. I might consider running, you know, a half mile on a treadmill now. So you inspired me. I think you could do a hundred miles, Kate. <laughs> anybody can do that. It, it, seriously though, anybody can. It, it, I mean, it's, it's incredible. There's, there's no, there's no limit to, to what you can do if, if you can think it, you know, I, I seriously, it sounds so cliche, but this is the best example of that. Well, no sarcasm. This is inspiring. So thanks for joining us, Tim. And please be sure to check out Tim's podcast with Michelle Cordero, Heritage Explains. You guys are awesome. And that's going to do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to the Daily Signal podcast brought to you from the Robert H. Bruce Radio Studio at the Heritage Foundation. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. And please leave us a review or a five-star rating on iTunes to give us feedback. We'll see you again tomorrow. You've been listening to the Daily Signal podcast, executive produced by Kate Trinko and Daniel Davis. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.